Hello and welcome once again to Center Left Radio, the progressive voice of hope, politics, and jazz. My name is Richard Gazer, and as always, I am pleased and I'm honored to be your host and your commentator for another of our commentary shows. One of the shows that we have up on air, online, uh, 24-7 pretty much, if you're, if you're listening to us via uh, what we call our radio loop. That's the second link on the homepage. And you probably know where that is because your good chances that's how you're listening to us. The homepage is www.centerlefttalkradio, one word, centerlefttalkradio.com. You're listening to whatever point in the show you happen to come in on. That's rather indicative of what a, or suggestive of what a loop is supposed to be. Or you may be looking for us and listening to us on our podcast feed. Any show that you're listening to on our radio loop is also up in the podcast. You pick up the podcast on the same website, www.centerlefttalkradio.com, or pick us up wherever you get your podcasts from. In that case, you'd look for us as Center Left Radio. Uh, I've been talking about this show uh, for several days now, about this coming up, and and we've been kind of, uh, depending on your point of view, either in a rut or in a run-up to the ideas that are going to be discussed today. I am uh, pleased to have with us once again three guys who have been on this microphone before several times for several of them, for what we are uh, sort of branding a Noble Hearts Forum uh, based on words that came from our high school song, uh, a, a high school in Manhattan known as Regis High School. At the time that we all went there, it was considered the top high school in the country. Now I think it's only it's dropped down to being the best Catholic high school in the country. Uh, such, such, such far depths that it is tumbled into at this point. We, the idea of the show, as I was pitching it to these guys, and and I should add that the guys here include uh, Charles Webble, Dr. Charles Webble, who has been on these mics many times. He's five-time Fulbright Scholar, uh, the, uh, co-author of the text on peace studies, the, the, the major text that's being used, has taught, I don't know, every place on the planet, and is someplace way out on the planet right now, as far as I know. He's one hell of a smart guy, and you've listened to him any number of times on these microphones, and I would dare say enjoyed him, depending on the mood he was in and what characterization he wanted to use to express his thoughts. Uh, Bill Mulligan uh, is, uh, is, I gather right now, in the middle of teaching uh, his his last semester at Murray State at the moment. Uh, uh, I, I'm sure there are all sorts of emotions and feelings that go with that. He's uh, one of the top recognized historians in the country on all manner of levels. I'm not going to go back through everybody's resume at this stage in the game. He survived uh, the tornadoes in Kansas. We were just talking a moment ago before we started the show, and uh, uh, but was well aware of all the, the horror that happened right next door, as it were. And, and of course, uh, one John Cugini, our our systems guy, our IT guy, depending on the era you're in, which pair of initials you want to use to describe it. John's been involved in the development and implementation of every kind of system, mostly working for the government for a rather long career and a rather interesting one. Please look him up on 
Facebook or something one of these days. I think it goes on and on about what systems he worked in. And the reason these guys are here is because, well, they're smart and they talk and they think. Uh, we live in an age where most information for a substantial part of our population comes in the form of social media content. I mean, and on the same platform, let's say maybe, let's say Facebook, you're going to find out that your cousin just arrived at that great Chinese restaurant for dinner, and later you'll see a picture of the dim sum that she had, and if you just shift over one more column, you'll see a news feed that, depending on what the algorithm thinks you are, will either be telling you that Donald Trump is the last chance we have for preserving democracy in our country, or he's the reason why the entire country is about to fail, and another row over and you'll find the latest dumb joke that your group is, is, is basically sharing. And, and the whole thing begins to look like a big show. Uh, that you, depending on which channel or what you want to look at for a moment, that reality becomes predominant and all other things fade away. So that the significance of what we're taking in largely has been debased by the way in which the media that we use to take things in presents things to us. I think in a way that you know, I haven't seen in my lifetime. And now this is probably no great revelation to a lot of people, but, but it proceeds, it, it really has a lot to do with what we're going to be talking today. Our original topic was going to be, what happens if Donald Trump runs for president again? What, what are the invariable pathways? Where does it all end up? What does it spell for the democracy? I'm taking uh, the commentator's prerogative here and adding a little something up front to that concept. And that is, there is a more likely chance, I think, between now and even as early as the 2022 midterms, that Mr. Trump will probably find himself indicted by some vehicle or another. Uh, Letitia James has just issued a motion to compel, which is uh, right on the edge, as anyone who's worked in New York law knows, it's right on the edge of basically putting out all sorts of orders to basically grab materials. The Trump Organization, for like 34 months as this has been going on, it's, it's been a civil investigation at the New York state level. They have stonewalled the whole thing. There have been, uh, you know, one uh, Fifth Amendment plea after the next. This is what you do after all that has been worn out. On the federal level, there is Merrick Garland, who just basically brought indictments against the Oath Keepers and basically has made a promise shortly before that, that there is no one immune, no matter how high up on the tree they sit, no one is immune from prosecution. There is the Georgia criminal case that is still being pursued. There is the Manhattan criminal case that is being pursued by the new uh, 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 attorney general of, the, uh, of, of Manhattan that just came in with uh, Mayor Adams, who just joined us in New York City, who just was just elected. There are a number of vehicles that could come out with an indictment of an individual. And if they don't, after everything that's been said and done, that I feel would be an indictment of our, 
own democracy, of our own constitution, that we are unable to basically apply the rule of law equally. But assuming we do, and that Mr. Trump is indicted, the first thing that'll happen, and that has to happen, is that Deutsche Bank, the largest American bank with loans out to him, will automatically withcall, recall those loans. That is a standard procedure in an indictment situation with American banks. It's written into every loan contract. If you are indicted, now you can make an argument that one of the Trump organizations was in fact named in the, in the suit that was brought against Alan Weisselberg by the Manhattan DA, but it was too low and too small a level apparently to trigger the clawback that could be done by Deutsche Bank. But a full-blown indictment will do that. If an indictment comes down, if there's a clawback, the Trump organization crumbles. It, it becomes the house of cards begins to fall down. And the Republicans begin to wonder why they didn't do something sooner. Now, I, I would suggest that at the moment, as we sit here, the Republicans are hoping that something will happen sooner rather than later, that these, these horrible lib people who are out to get him will, for God's sake, please get this guy. Because if we allow this to go forward, and even if we allow him, and now I'm going into what would have been the show that I wanted to do, even if we allow him to run and he doesn't get indicted, then we have a candidate who is running on a falsehood, a probable falsehood, and we are also going to be constantly subject to questions about the validity of the election because of the laws that were passed in different states on the, on the premise that Donald was robbed of his election. And if that happens, who is going to accept the results of the election? When, when you put this all together, a question comes out of this. Have we already lost whatever it was that America is supposed to be in terms of a functional democracy? If Trump is pulled off the battlefield, as it were, there will be a sudden vacuum, and that vacuum will pull most Republicans into a circular firing squad. Everybody will be looking for some way to either blame someone or take over power for what uh, for what they perceive will be the last stand, I, you know, the, the last way to get back at or do something, and it'll be chaos. If he's not indicted, our entire system of democracy is indicted and convicted and func functionally incarcerated, I would say. The Constitution becomes meaningless, or maybe it never had any real meaning. People take things into their own hands and, and declare the meaning of the Constitution to be whatever serves the purpose of any individual who wants to declare it, because it clearly is not treating everyone equally, if it ever has. What does this portend for the Republican Party? What does this portend for the country? Are we basically just experiencing another of those speed bumps on the road to a more perfect union? Is this to be expected, what we're going through, a normal process in the road to a more perfect union, fully anticipated by our Constitution? Or have we really blown it this time? Wow. Um 
I'm not sure where to start. That's that's um, anywhere you'd like to, Bill. Anywhere um, you'd like to. In some in some ways, the answer is yes. It was anticipated. If you read the Federalist Papers, they talk about the danger of democracy and excessive democracy and a demagogue. Yes. And the need for balance. So the idea of someone like Trump coming along was anticipated. What they never, what this Federalist Papers did not envision were political parties. That's right. And where the yeah, interest of the party might supersede the moral values of the country. Yeah. And so in that sense, it's a bit, yes, partly it's been anticipated, but the system developed in ways that they really couldn't or didn't foresee. I also worry about whether truth, if there is a truth that will be accepted by enough people that it will matter. There seems to be a hardcore who believe everything Trump says, <laughs> despite objective evidence. Um, and he spent a great deal of time undermining all of the traditional sources for accurate information. Yeah. Um, so that I think there's that dilemma. I think partly, and I'm going to stop in one, one, two more points, and then I'm going to turn this over. I think there are Republicans hoping that something will happen. Yeah, that's the sense <laughs> that someone, yeah. that someone yeah. will intervene, and there'll be such a damning indictment that the the number of true believers shrinks, and they can they can reclaim their party. Um, I also though worry. We've never indicted a former president. That's right. We tend to criticize countries when former political leaders get indicted <laughs> as not being fully democratic. Mm -hmm. And so I think if he is indicted, and I expect it's more likely than not that he will be, that issue is going to have to be confronted head on. Why are we suddenly 200 plus years into this experiment um, indicting <laughs> a former president? John Cugini, John, what happens? What what do Republicans see, or what do what do, however many traditional Republicans there are, and I would call you a traditional Republican. Yeah. What's what's the gut reaction at the thought of, and I'm just being specific, Donald yeah. Trump being indicted? How does this strike you? Yeah, let me um, let me break that down a, a few ways. Uh, when we talk about Republicans, I think there, let's take two slices. I think there are, let's call them for want of a better word, the elite, the leadership, Mitch McConnell, Lindsey Graham. Yeah. And then there's the base. And then there are the other slices, the Trump loyalists versus, for want of a better term, the policy guys. I would have resisted, and I, I don't think I resist as much as I used to, the idea that among the base, there are... 30, 40, 50, I don't know, percent of Republicans, they love Trump and that's it. You know, as Trump said, he could shoot somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue, they'd vote for him. Yeah. Uh, they won't be happy. My sense is that among the elite, his support is much weaker. I mean, Mitch McConnell does not love Donald Trump. I mean, they, they have to, no. you know, you can't say anything that Youngkin doesn't like Donald Trump. They have to not say any bad things about him because of support. But when push comes to shove, no one's going to go to the wall for, for Donald Trump. Among, certainly among the elite. If the indictment 
if there's an indictment that is plausible, and especially one based on non-political grounds, I, I take I think uh, you know Bill made a good point about not indicting former presidents, and I think anything connected to the speech you incited a riot, I think that's kind of dangerous territory. But if it's you know you stole money from people applying to a college, or you know you committed sexual assault on a woman. I, I don't think there's going to be a lot of pushback to that and let, and let there be a trial. And I will say just a little side observation. I think the trials we've had so far this year are somewhat a, so show somewhat a strength of the American system. I think most of the trials, in my opinion, have kind of turned out the right way. And, you know, it's gone another way. There's been Jesse Smollett and Rittenhouse and Arbery and, you know, Kim Potter and all the rest of it. I think when you start to look at actual facts and you get people to study them closely, people, you know, kind of come to a sensible conclusion. So if Trump, if there's a plausible case against Trump, yes, you really stole money from these people and it's proven. I hardcore Trump supporters will be unhappy. You know, we've been robbed. It was a political, but I think most of the Republican Party will say, so what? Good riddance. I mean, Ann Coulter, who, you know, has, as you know, is no, no left winger. I mean, she thinks she believes that Trump is already done. She thinks he's the Sarah. She said he's the Sarah Palin, basically, of the Republican <laughs> Party. He can still draw a crowd. He's got his supporters. A lot of people like him. But, but she thinks already that his chances of being nominated are pretty low. I'm not sure I agree with that. But I mean, just just to let you know. So so there's there's a hardcore. But but I don't think Trump has a, a large a bunch of elite backers that are really, like, say, going to go to the wall for him. And they so would be the one, and they would be the it. ones who we would have to depend on. They, you would be depending on those elites, basically, as 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 the structure that would have to support what's going on. And yet, no yeah. one at this point. It, it's it's all unspoken. It's all sub rosa. Everybody yeah. assumes we're. All, I, I'm talking about mm-hmm. assumptions about what might happen. John, by the way, I'm I'm. I'm almost surprised in a way that you didn't focus more on physical danger that might be inherent in uh, an indictment of Trump. You didn't bring that up at all. Do you see that I, as an issue? No, I don't place? see it. I mean, the executive, I mean, for one thing, Biden's president, I mean, the federal government and, you know, is in charge. You know, the Democrats are running the federal government at the moment, the Southern District of New York or whoever is indicting him. Uh, I what's going to happen? I mean, who's got, like I say, who's going to go to the wall? Does, does Trump have this Praetorian guard that's going to shoot it out with the police? I, I doubt it. So it's, I mean, yeah, maybe, so, but I, I doubt it. No, so, 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 wait, so then you're kind of, a, I'm sorry, Bill, 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 go ahead. Yeah. What what about the Proud Boys and the people who actually showed up on January 6th and trade? What are they going to do? What are they going to do? Well, they could they could attack a courthouse. I mean, they're going to have to be okay. stopped. I don't think they can overthrow Maybe. the government. But yeah. I think that we shouldn't just rule out the fact that there may not be a violent reaction. But if we're prepared oh, for there, that there violent reaction, I mean, yeah. I, you know, yeah. I don't know. I, I mean, but there's been, there's been violent reactions. I mean, oh, you know, go through the litany. I mean, left-wingers bombed the Capitol in 71 and 83 Puerto Ricans shot it up in 1954. I mean, there there may well be a violent reaction, but it'll be local. And I don't I don't think there's any systematic. You know, the Proud Boys are not going to take over the United States government anytime soon. I, so so yeah, worst case there'll be violent reaction. But there you know there's there's been political violence in this country before. And there will be again. And yeah, you know, we're all question. against it. No one's in favor of assassinations and stuff. But 
Yeah. Oh dear, there, 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 there's, there's a nasty word. There are people yeah. who are in favor of assassinations. Yeah. When you get outside <laughs> the elite group, I mean, even someone like like Tony Fauci's getting death threats. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's not uncommon for that. Seems to be almost a reflexive reaction at some of the more extremes on both sides, left and on right. On both sides, yeah. Um, yes. but, but I don't think but that's there a is, systematic I, well, threat. But well. when Trump says to the January 6th people, go home, I love you, mm -hmm. and has refused to criticize them, isn't that basically saying, you know, that he endorses violence? He's been, well, Trump, Trump has been careful. He's tiptoed along this line. I want you to go to the Capitol and protest peacefully. So he's 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 you know covered covered his ass, which is which is what he would expect. Oh, but if, if you but, but again, whether I think the question Rich was asking, I think was is there some sort of systematic threat of large? That was outcome? the question, and that I and I, I don't see that. Yeah, I, I, oh, I, I'm, I I'm not sure. You know, Mo, Mo Brooks wore a bulletproof vest in the January. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Excuse me. Char yes, Charles Charles Webble, congressman what? from Alabama. Bill, Bill I'm cutting you off. Charles Webble, since you yes. represent the remainder of the planet, other than the four of us, <laughs> what is happening out there? What are you hearing? You're you're in the Middle East at this point, as I recall. You're in Dubai at this point. No, I'm back in checkered. Republic. You're back in Czech, which is, you can get there from here, as it were. Excellent. What are you hearing? What is, and does it does it matter what you're hearing from people in Czech and other places? about America, no, about all this? Not about Trump, but about the decline and fall of American democracy, which most people lament, and the fall and continued fall of the American empire, which most people applaud. And ah. to, go, to go back to the future a little bit, I'd like to appeal to our classical miseducation, hmm. um, making three points from that. The first is Plato saw history as a progression from mob rule, which is democracy in his view, through autocracy, oligarchy, and plutocracy, which is a combination of the elite and the mob in the Republican Party and many elites in the Democratic Party as well. Yeah. To a noble-hearted aristocracy, not based on property or wealth, but based on intellect and wisdom. He was a stringent, strident opponent of all things democratic because he thought inevitably it breeds demagoguery and tyranny. Hmm. That inevitably breeds, to the point about violence, violent resistance to demagoguery and tyranny, which inevitably breeds resistance to the resurrection of democratic rule. And this goes on in Plato's view forever until you have the rule of the wise, philosopher kings or queens. Yeah. Aristotle also was a critic of democracy for some of the same reasons. Namely, he thought it inevitably leads to oligarchy and tyranny but it does not inevitably lead to violence. And the reason that violence on a mass scale can be prevented is through a combination we call what you would call good rulers and good laws. The emphasis on good laws making good rulers. Hence, he was an advocate of what he called mixed government, 
taking from democracy, oligarchy, and uh, tyranny, what he thought were the best features of each of those, wedded to a firm constitutional structure. That became the basis for Roman law, Roman rule, and eventually the adaptation of Roman and 17th century English political norms by the, uh, the American founders of the Constitutional Republic called the United States. Now, going a little bit to the future, what people in, quote, the rest of the world are concerned about is not Trump, but Trumpism. Trumpism is the mass phenomenon, as John would say, combining the base, in all senses of the word base, hmm. of circa 50 million people with the shifting elites, whose allegiance is based on power and privilege. Whoever will maintain their power and privilege gets their allegiance. Insofar as Trump is capable of continuing to do that, the Republican and other plutocratic elites will remain nominally loyal to Trump, but they'll jump ship like cornered rats once they see that Trump's ship is going down. Yeah. I, yeah. I agree that does not follow necessarily for the base base, for the circa 40 to 50 million people who form the mob um, whose specter is still haunting Washington and the rest of the world. And that's what terrifies the rest of the world. The rest of the world is not terrified by the persona of Donald J. Trump or the Trump business. The rest of the world is terrified by what Plato would call, and most classical writers would call, the base from which the demagogues emerge. Plato said, political leaders reflect the people they lead. Trump's so-called leadership reflects his base, and vice versa. Right. You can try to minimize the demagoguery of Trump through all kinds of legally-based remedies, which may or may not happen, but that will not assuage the base, at least not for a significant period of time. And I agree with Bill that the base is going to get way off base no matter what happens with Trump unless he becomes president again in 2024. This terrifies the rest of the world because they see the decline and fall of American democracy as a symptom of the decline and fall of Western civilization. For Russia, this is to be applauded. For China, this is to be welcomed. <laughs> For many other less constitutionalist, less democratic governments around the world, this is inevitable, given the trajectory of the rise and fall of American power since the end of World War II. So as I see it, and I read lots of foreign press and watch lots of news reports in different languages, virtually none of them are concerned with the actual person and possible criminal liability of Donald J. Trump. What terrifies them is the collapse of the American Republic and the rise of other demagogues more skilled than Trump in acquiring and maintaining power and of the mass base that bring these other demagogues to power now, wait, because wait, they, they, they think this yeah. threatens the entirety of Western civilization. All right. Here, here's what I find fascinating in your response, besides the fact that you, Charles, gave it, but that and obviously deliciously and thoughtfully presented. 
I'm going back to the, the conversation that the three of us, minus you, had just before you came into the conversation now. Nowhere in there did I get, I, I think maybe I might have projected it, but nowhere from, uh, from Bill or from John did I get the sense that there's a real danger here, a brewing uh, for the current democracy. What you're talking about is the world really, really being on edge and very frightened about the implications of, well, first, the, the factual demise of the American democratic system, whatever it may be, whatever iteration it is, but, but something recognizable and associatable with our Constitution and how this would ultimately play out and affect them. We're going to go to break for a minute here, but I, I just want to pose a thought. Why isn't it, and I, I don't know that it's fair to, 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 again, take Bill and John and me and anyone as indicative of, of the American mindset, but why aren't we hearing more? And why aren't we ourselves on this side of the political equation or whatever side you're on, more sensitive and more in line with what, Charles, you're describing the rest of the world seems to be feeling and thinking. Just let's mull that for a second. And uh, I, 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 the way we tend to do this on center-left radio is with a little jazz.
This is Richard Gazer. You know, it takes lots of time and effort and all kinds of resources to produce the kind of quality program we produce here at Center Left Radio. And it costs money to do it. Now, if we screamed a little louder or thought a little less about what we were saying, we could probably get a few advertisers to pay us to sell their products to a more tribally predictable audience. But that's not who we are or who you are. You come to Center Left Radio for non-commercial, thoughtful commentary. You're looking for an honest, progressive approach to solving America's problems, not exacerbating them. And we're committed to providing all of that. We're one of the few stations offering full-time, non-commercial, progressive programming. And we're the only station, the only one, doing it with a combination of hope, politics, and that most eloquent of all original American art forms, jazz. Think of it this way. We support your needs. Now we're asking you to support ours. Take a moment and go to our website, www.centerlefttalkradio, one word, centerlefttalkradio.com, and go to the donate page. And when you get there, give whatever you can. On a one-time or maybe a recurring basis, $5, $10, $1,000, whatever you can contribute to make Center Left Radio's unique progressive voice stronger and even more significant as the full extent of the wrongdoing of Donald Trump and his associates becomes all the more evident. And as we seek to hold the House Democrats accountable for the promises they made to the American people during the last election. Yeah, you know what's at stake. And I know, we all know, we can count on you. On behalf of all of us at Central F Radio, Thank you. We're back, and, uh, and we've been talking uh, about, I guess, to, to put it in, in, in general terms, the future survival of America. Um, oh, I think there is a danger. I think you misunderstood if you thought I said there was no danger. And Bill Mulligan has just jumped in before I could even do the reset because you needed to and go right ahead. I'm sorry, Bill. <laughs> I think the, the changes in voting that are being implemented in a large part of the country, making it more difficult uh, for people to vote. Uh, and they seem, while on the surface, argue, you can argue they're race neutral, when when these below the surface, uh, they're not race or class neutral. Yeah. They also affect um, economically marginalized people as well as racially, racial minorities. I mean, the state of Alabama put in, established a voter ID law and then closed the offices in the 19 counties with the largest black population that issued the IDs. That's presented as a budget measure. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. The, you know, the rules are being changed to allow legislatures to reject uh, the vote of the people and substitute their slate of electors for the actual electors, which could be a serious constitutional crisis because technically the legislatures um, do determine who the electors are. They choose to allow it to be done by popular vote. Yeah. So I think the danger is that we will lose our democracy in that increasingly the country will be run by a minority. We already have a situation, well, Wisconsin, for example, 40% of the people in Wisconsin 
elect 60% of the legislators. Uh, the way districts are drawn um, has, has in, 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 embodied or enshrined um, minority rule. The districts are not drawn equally. Uh, in North Carolina, there's one district that wanders across the state of North Carolina to scoop up every black voter into one district. Um, those kinds of things, I think, are a danger to democracy. Uh, because one of the consequences is we have less competitive elections, which means the primaries become more important. And there's a huge amount of evidence that in the primaries, the voters who vote are the most motivated and right. often the most extreme. Right, 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 right. So right, candidates right. have little reason to compromise to get nominated, and then they're almost assured of election. Let, so let, I think there is a systemic danger, and it's very hard to fix because at its root is the Electoral College. Let's and, assume, Bill, hang on. Let, let's just assume that all of these things that you're talking about now actually come to bear. Now, let's assume that one or two state, uh, maybe a congressional elections in 2022, actually come down to some politically appointed individual overruling le the, the legislature or the usual bodies, the constitutionally recognized bodies that would verify counts for election. And they actually overrule an election. And this happens in uh, Wisconsin, or it happens in Michigan, I, who knows where, Missouri, I don't know, wherever it happens. What happens to the rest of the country the next morning when everybody wakes up and basically goes online on social media and figures out where their cousin had her last meal and what the dim sum looked like and everything else? What, what changes, or, or can you envision can you draw some kind of a roadmap that proceeds from things like this actually happening? Or do we just kind of go on because it's just another show? It's another channel to tune to in social media. Do we even recognize the change? Are we too numbed out already by the way we receive information that we will not understand the significance or enough of us won't understand the significance and it just won't change our lives enough to make it matter john do you do you have any yeah. sense on that I'm, I'm... yeah i have a a, a couple of reactions I, I i've teed up a quote which i i just can't resist and it's not like i'm doing this from memory don't get me wrong uh so james james someone madison, will let you know i'm sure if you get it wrong james don't madison worry. one of those dead white guys slaveholder yeah 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 uh, is there no virtue among us? If there be not, we are in a wretched situation. No theoretical checks, no form of government can render us secure. To suppose that any form of government will secure, secure liberty or happiness without any virtue in the people is a chimerical idea. There you go. Our constitution was written for moral and religious people, blah, blah, blah. If, if you kind of assume that the people and the elites are corrupt, that they're going to vote along partisan lines no matter what then then i nothing nothing you could do is going, is going to be of any help um so the the two issues i think then are there's one there's they're kind of separable there's sort of fairness and stability uh bill was addressing some of the fairness things what what's what counts as voter suppression what doesn't protection against voter fraud i actually don't want to get into that it gets okay. a little technical okay uh i think if but if we're worried about stability you know, we've got an algorithm. I mean, it looks like, so here's here's the scenario. There's a close vote in Florida or Michigan. 
it it relies it, it's we start worrying about whether people checked a name or they circled a name. The law says you have to check it. The state court says no circling is good enough. The state legislature says that's not what we said. We said you have to check the name, not circle it. The Supreme Court vindicates the state legislature and say, no, only the check names count, so this guy wins and not, and not the other guy. Then the Congress, who's controlled by the other party, let's say the Democrats, say, no, you don't care what the Supreme Court said, we're not going to, you know, at some point, when you get, and I think this is in a close election, I, I will say this, I think if it's not a close election, I think we're fine. Let me start off with that. We only have close elections, it seems, these days. That's well, the problem. Well, well, no, I mean, 2000 was close, but 2016 and 2020 were not particularly close. Well, no, no, I mean, no, I'm, I'm saying, I'm saying to, on a state-by-state state basis, state-by-state. State. popular yeah. vote and the electoral vote. Yeah. Popular yeah, vote no, but we're close for a long time. Where a few votes count. Where um, a few votes the count. system is backed against yeah. the majority electing the president. Um, I'm sorry, what? The system is stacked against the majority electing the president. Ah, and well, very I mean, few of the last, I think, yeah. eight presidents, I think only one of the last eight presidents has had a majority of the popular vote. Um, the Electoral College favors small states. Wyoming gets three electoral votes for like, what, yeah, 800,000 yeah. people, which is fewer people than live in Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, yeah. But this is the, again, this is the fairness. I mean, that's the fairness debate as opposed to the stability debate. I'm, I'm going to stability for the moment. We, we've got an algorithm. Whether it's fair or not, that's that's sort of a separate debate. The question is, is the algorithm going to play out without resort to gunfire? That's that's the start well, there. But if you don't I think, have it, fairness, I think in most cases, the answer is yes. But if it's close enough and if people really feel outraged, the Congress then doesn't certify what the Supreme Court said, then then I think. Then, then you have a problem. I, I don't know how that how that Does, gets. Does it? Is all of if this you don't argument? Have fairness, though, you're not going to have stability in the long run. Stability, so sure fair. Wait, stability, fairness, whatever the algorithm is. Yeah. Doesn't all of this argue in favor of what Charles was relating before about Plato's view of what the ultimate and best way a system should be and how it should work? Again, assuming that it did work the way Plato was saying that you have an enlightened. What was it? What's the term that he used, Charles? Enlightened philosopher elite. Kings. Philosopher kings. Okay, yeah. the philosopher king notion. However, that interprets like every other thinker of the age. What are we arguing in favor of here? What what should we be? He was arguing in favor of stability, and that the only way to enhance and preserve stability is by having the rule of the best, not the rule of the most um, greedy avaricious, power-driven, but the rule of the wise. And for better or worse, and he would argue for worse, as long as you don't have that, you have instability. Is democracy as America practices it right now a worn-out concept, a non-functional sort of thing? Should America be getting out of democracy and not feeling bad about the thought of doing it because there's something better? America is not what Plato or any Greek understood by democracy. For them, democracy meant direct voting by adult male citizens who from among them pick the people they think can do the best job. It does not mean all these layers of electoral colleges and all this other stuff. So for him, the American system would be a combination of the worst aspects of plutocracy, 
oligarchy and popular pseudo-democracy. The way you preserve stability, going back to classical Greek or Roman education, is by having the best people and the best laws, and not by having mass rule or the intimidation of the best by the worst. There's been a lot of work recently in political theory actually extending this analysis in two different directions. One is the analysis which did come up after Trump's selection, which is called, for those of us with a Greek background, kakistocracy, meaning the rule of the worst. And quite a number of respectable political theorists have argued, as I was arguing, that Trumpism represents possibly the temporary, possibly the enduring victory of kakistocracy. On the other hand, people like me argue this goes in circles, that you have Obama and Trump, you have Trump and Biden, you have Biden and God knows what, because voters are fickle, because the electorate wants change that they believe will be for the better, and politicians are promising them change for the better, so they vote for the politician they think will promote their interests in the best possible way. And this goes, as the Greeks and Romans pointed out, in unending circles. So the reaction against Trump in 2020 could well be met by a reaction against possibly the failures of the Democrats to deliver on what they promised in 2024, meaning the system is inherently unstable from this point of view. Charles, is that, it doesn't sound unstable. Is that so bad? I mean, it's, it's, it's true. The Americans seem to, you know, we seem to get two terms of one guy, two, two, two terms of another. I, I'm, I'm not appalled by that, I must say. I mean, the, the, um, why is that a bad thing? It is bad for three reasons. First, it leads inevitably to crises, which lead inevitably to violence. And violence is viewed by virtually every classical political thinker as an evil, whether it's necessary or not, one can debate. But the more the system is unstable, coming back to systems thinking, the more there's room for instability, disruptions, eruptions, and then reactions against that in a never-ending cycle. So they didn't attribute a value judgment to this. They simply saw this as the law of politics. Politics goes in cycles. The Roman historian Livy wrote about that extensively, and Machiavelli picked that up. And Machiavelli's whole theory is based on the cyclical nature of political evolution. Again, he didn't apply a value judgment to it. He didn't say it was good or bad, but he said if you want to have a, a strong republic, which is what he was advocating based on what he thought of the early days of the Roman Republic, then you need good laws and good leaders. They all come back to that. Okay. Everyone. But, sure. but Charles, I mean, the classic comeback to that is, okay, great. I'd love to have good laws and good leaders. How do we go about selecting them and getting them? Who's, who's on the commit? Who's on education, the Education, education, and education. All of them agree on that. 
Okay, so so is is that where America has fallen down? If we were to insert That's Charles in your thought, if we and, and then built in the constitutional system are these antiquities like the electoral college, like the way the Senate is constituted. The whole list goes on and on. So you need far-reaching radical constitutional reforms in order to enhance the system's stability. Is it reasonable to even think that we can do that in any kind of uh, mid or midterm period? There is a committee working on that, has been working on it for about 10 years, initially headed by the now Democratic gubernatorial candidate, Danielle Allen, who holds the chair in political ethics at Harvard, and she was part of, and I, I looked at the work they were doing on constitutional reform, calling for another constitutional Congress, in fact. Um, I think it's much too little, much too late. Okay. But yes, there are there are people who are actively promoting that, but they run into a brick wall when they actually raise this with politicians. Is there a possibility in, in anyone's way of looking at this? Go back to, well, I'll, I'll go back to what I was saying in the very beginning. There's a chance, I think, that all hell could break loose over here, that the Republicans go into a circular firing squad sort of a mode when the vacuum, this huge vacuum that suddenly happens if Donald gets pulled off the playing field by virtue of an indictment. Everybody's trying to jockey for position. And in the process of all that happening, they basically go through a functional meltdown. The Republican Party, at least on a national political basis, is no longer is no longer viable for whatever period of time. Rich, Rich, can I can I can I stop you there? I mean, I don't I don't get that circular fire. Let's say Trump is indicted. Okay, he's out. Let's say I'm not wishing it. He has a medical crisis. He's out. I mean, no Trump. Okay. Why, yeah. why do the Republicans go into a circular firing squad? Why, why do we have, huge why do we have a Republican? Vacuum. Why do we have Republican primaries where DeSantis? runs against Cotton, runs against Hawley, and we have a Republican primary and we choose a candidate. I All don't right. I don't John, then then you then you would be here. then you're thinking, you're saying that yeah. basically a stable a stable party is just sitting there waiting for Donald to kind of go away, that there's yeah. a there's an intrinsic stability that's still within the Republican Party that will sort of automatically emerge if you take him out of the picture. Is that, a, is that a safe assumption? Is that a reasonable assumption? But what do you it's base that on? Reason. I think that's, that unreasonable. would be my guess. That would be my guess. Why, why would that not happen? Oh, oh, it's okay. not unreasonable when you think of how much, how hard Trump works to stir up things. Yeah. How much he has lowered the level of political discourse. His, yeah. his targeting the, the, the politics of insult. He has coarsened public discourse. He has made it much more difficult for people to stand up to him because, A, he calls them names, he sicks the base on them. However small the base is, we know in a primary election, voter turnout is very, very low. Trump mm -hmm. stirs up 30% yeah. of the people who turn out 100% to vote against you, and you're dead. So I think removing him would be stabilizing in the short term. Now, whether in the long term, the Republican Party is not going to have to make some adjustments to appeal more to particularly Hispanics, which they're showing really good signs of beginning yeah. to appeal to Hispanics yeah. because yeah. of their social conservatism, yeah. but to appeal to African-Americans and other groups. Now, they can do that because we know historically 
Republican Party has done that. Yeah. Yeah. The civil rights bills of the 1960s would not have passed without Republican support. Right. Yeah. Charles, you said before that the big fear outside in the in the world, everything that you're seeing, is not about Trump so much as Trumpism. If Trump were pulled off the field, do you think many of the people that you interact with around the planet and, and, and in check right now, would that be indicative or at least a signal that Trumpism was going away as well? Or is it going to take some other kind of manifestations on the part of the American system? Would there be some confidence raising just by Trump disappearing? Would that be enough? No. Lots of well-educated, thoughtful people think the American system is inherently flawed. The phenomenon of Trumpism is exposing a crack in the armor of the American constitutional system. But there are many other cracks, one of which is its militarism. And from where I sit, no one is concerned about Donald Trump. Yeah, you said that. Everyone yeah. is concerned about war in Ukraine or a possible coming war between the United States and China or a possible war between Israel and Iran. That's what people are concerned about. And they see the United States, to give the Chinese metaphor, as a paper tiger uh, whose growl is much louder than its bite and the way Biden was walking back, what the United States would do if there were a, quote, incursion. Unquote, yeah, yeah, yes, yes, it is press conference. Yeah, yeah. Um, infuriates virtually every person left, right or center in Eastern and Central Europe because it shows the weakness of the United States in defending its commitments. On the other hand, there's no one who wants this war of words at the moment between the United States and Russia to escalate into any direct or indirect confrontation between the two. The Cold War was bad enough. It was felt most acutely where I am in Eastern and Central Europe, and no one wants to return to that. And they find Biden and especially uh, Blinken's rhetoric as unnecessarily provocative and undiplomatic. And that there were ways to deal with Russia, and I'm not talking about Putin. The obsession that Americans have with personalities comes out not merely in the persona of Trump and the way this is used rhetorically for better and worse, but also in the escalating rhetoric about Putin or, or Xi as emblems of what you resist if you are a so-called good Democrat with a with a local D, while ignoring the underlying structural issues of China and and Russia. Um, I I go to a lot of international online forums, and people outside American talking head circles are bewildered by this obsession that American pundits have. With Putin, Putin is a characteristic Russian. He's not a genius. I've actually met him and talked to him. Mm. He's not a wily Machiavellian puppet master. 
He's an opportunist. He's a chameleon. He's a shifting politician whose strategy and tactics are in evolution and a constant game of action and reaction based on what he perceives the probabilities are in different courses of action. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's what makes him a successful politician. But to focus on Putin phobia and not on the real issues that divide Russia and the West, as they have divided Russia and the West for hundreds of years, um, is to repeat the mistake of making the person the policy. Um, and again, most people in Europe are appalled and terrified by this because, again, the battle will be fought here, literally where I am. Yeah. Not in New York or Kentucky. Yeah. 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 What what should we you you we were talking earlier about this um, this commission or however you described it that had been set up to study alternate forms of government for America. You said that no reforming one's reforming really, the Constitution. Okay, reforming the Constitution. What is that? Is that the pathway to? creating a best-case scenario for going into the next 50 to 100 years or even the next 10 to 20 years for America. What should we be doing? What is the best course of action? If you had your druthers, what would you do to change things and all the things that we're talking about? Seriously, besides we bitch and moan and we and we and we find, you know, uh, we find uh, cultural positions to stake out on all this stuff. What should we actually be doing? I pose this to other sentient beings. You know, what, what? yeah, uh, I've got look, I'll have a modest suggestion. I don't think it's a cure. -all. One thing we haven't talked about enough, I think is the notion of polarization and the kind of the sore loser phenomenon that were, you know, we grew up in the 50s and 60s and early 60s when there was, I think, probably an, an unusually consensual atmosphere in the, you know, who's going to go to war over Eisenhower versus Adlai Stevenson? You know, probably nobody. Yeah. Yeah. Nixon, even Nixon and Kennedy, you know, pretty, actually pretty close politically in some ways. Yeah. The stakes feel higher now. I think polarization is real. I think it's something that has evolved out of the 60s revolution. I think people, you know, abortion, you know, you name it, people really are in two camps in the country. That makes the stakes higher. That means when you lose, oh, it's not just the other guys want to adopt a tax policy I don't like, but that my values are, are threatened. How do you solve that? Well, it'd be nice not to be polarized if everyone could agree with everyone else, but that's, let's leave that to the side. I'm a big proponent of federalism. I'd like to push things from the national level down to the state level. And, you know, as an example, abortion policy, let Missouri do what it wants, let California do what it, it wants. People will be less angry if they and, live- And let Alabama if, and Texas if, and Florida do what they want so that yeah. all the women who want abortions go to New York and California. Yeah, yeah. But for, that, for instance, does that, does that- Well, if every, if, every contentious, if every contentious issue gets decided on an all or nothing basis at the national level, the stakes are high and people accept defeat less graciously. 
So That's one way almost... to mitigate, it's not a cure-all, but one way to mitigate things would be to let people sort of You, you picked a hell of an example, John, to, to work against. I think, I think that's a blueprint. <laughs> no, that's uh, a blueprint for eventually dissolving the nation. I mean, one of the virtues of the 14th Amendment was to create the idea of basic rights for all Americans. And it right. doesn't matter what state you live in. As an American citizen, yeah. you have the same rights. Now, you're basically going to undo the 14th Amendment. And that has a lot well, of... Well, you know. Um, <laughs> well, I, but that's what you're talking about. Um, oh, I no. would have... What my suggestions would be that we, we, we decrease our investment in the military and significantly, exactly. and significantly increase our investment in education. Dismantle uh, think, the warfare state. I think if we, yeah. if we can increase the educational level and the real educational level of the American public, it'll be a lot harder for the people who twist the truth or spout falsehoods uh, to be believed. People will have better critical thinking skills. They'll have more of a background and understanding of history and civics and the Constitution. The other thing I think we need to really do is work on addressing economic inequality. A lot of what drives division is the polarization is jealousy. And the idea that one group is getting ahead at the advantage of another group. And I blame, in many ways, the Democratic Party for that, because they never really did a good job of explaining to the white working class why elevating the economic status and civil rights status of African Americans was good for them. They, they, mm. they did not ever explicitly or directly address that. And that opened up the avenue for the jealousy and the fear Someone else is getting ahead. I'm losing out. And um, that's this, you know, make America great again. America was not great in the 50s. A significant portion of the population, African-Americans and women, were oppressed yeah. and suppressed. Yeah. That yeah. was not a great time unless you were a white male. Yeah. And probably even a white product Christian male. <laughs> Yeah. And that Bill the, Bill, the definition of conservative and liberal is what do you think of the 1950s? You could you could absolutely oh, I could I tell know. a completely different story of the 1950s and both stories would be true. So Charles, oh, you're I, you're all about education, education, education. How do we begin this process in America? What are we what are the concrete steps besides someone finally just throwing a bunch of money? And if I'm not mistaken, there's supposed to be a bunch of money within the bipartisan uh, infrastructure bill that was voted on that will have a certain amount of uh, of uh, educational impact. What do we really have to do to make education, education, education work in this country? One thing is to get rid of the local funding of public education ah. and, establish, and establish both national standards for wow. literacy. Ah. I know John won't like Oh, that. my God. All right, no, go ahead. Guys, we're getting close to the end on this hour. This is the next show. <laughs> Okay, well, no, wait, no, this, this is the point. This is the point, though. <laughs> Charles, go ahead. No, really. Go ahead. Make your point completely, please, if you don't mind. I just did. I, I right. would have to go on for a, a couple of hours. <laughs> you, would have to, you would have to first educate the educators and educate the politicians. And I don't know about how educable politicians are, whether they're left, right, or center. I don't think there's any denial that that number one on the list, and I'm hearing, that, well, John, I don't know, would you agree that education is the number one thing that we have to change 
or is there uh, something even higher than education? Yeah, yeah no, I, 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 we, we sink lots and lots of money into education. People go have opportunities to go to high school and community college. I don't know how much more education we can throw at people. I mean, it, I think we kind of. It's not a question of money. It's a question of curriculum, and it's a question of the following through of the curriculum oh, okay. by teachers. Okay, so so let me let me do a, an, an uncharitable paraphrase. When you say education, you don't mean quantity and availability of education. You mean the contents of education, and people need to be taught to think, quote, the right way, i.e., kind of like you think. Would that be That's fair? a straw man. <laughs> all right. No, well, well, need, yeah, I, I, all right, well, go on. Bill, Bill I'm sorry. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah. And they need to have a factual basis. They need to understand... Yeah. Rules of they need scientific they need political literacy. Yeah. Yes, need to go back to All right. I think in terms of scientific literacy. I, right. I, I think I think we're on I'm to what the right. next forum is going to be all about. We're we're hitting an hour right about now, and I promised myself I'm, that that well, I, I I keep my listeners down to a little bit over an hour. That's as far as I think I could take them. With this right. crowd, I think we could go on for the next two hours. But we're, we need another show. We need another forum to talk specifically about what education reform means. First, yeah. what it means to America. What don't we have right now? What is not working? What could reasonably work? Obviously, the, the differences that I'm hearing between John and Charles, and, and I could jump in on this, but I'm not at the moment, this deserves to be hashed out. It's, it usually gets hashed out only on the culture war level, and a lot of the specifics and a lot of the meanings and a lot of the, the real discussion about what really is being impacted and, and, and why things should be a certain way that next level, we rarely get there. We end at a certain light sort of statement that everybody can sort of draw their own positions about, and we don't seem to get much beyond that. Uh, I, I, I want a commitment here. Uh, will you guys all be willing to come back and do something on the state of education and where it should go? John, yes, okay. Bill, Charles, can I, uh, can I count on you? Well, I, you're the guy who's education, education, education. Say no, and I'll be I'll be crushed, first crushed, and then something else. I'm not sure what else. That's assuming we make it through the next couple of months without a world war. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not joking about that. Well, no, I, th this is where I started my, well, this, now, now we have gone full circle. That's kind of where I was beginning or where my ideas were going when I was uh, setting the table the first time for this show. Clearly, there's a great deal more that needs to be discussed and I'm uh, extremely grateful that we discussed as much as we did. I wasn't expecting that we were going to solve the problems of America and the immediate neighborhood there beyond uh, in one hour, but I think we've done a, a decent job, and I think our panel has definitely done a decent job in laying out a lot more than just America's problems. America's problems become the world's problems in, in many ways, and our problems are problems that we have not dealt with efficiently in the past for, for a variety of reasons. We've covered some of the problems that can be related directly to the current political environment. We began with Donald Trump, but I think, I think we're all agreeing that it's Trumpism and the, the whole mindset that goes with that more than the individual. And it comes down to, in the end, at least uh, from what we're 
coming to in this discussion, uh, discussions about the nature and the, and the resolution and the improvement of education, but, but to first understand why and how. I mean, that last interchange between, between John and, and, and Charles, uh, that it became instantly politicized, um, we, we can't end there. We, we, that, that can't be where this goes because then people just retreat back into corners. The discussion has to go deeper and further, and it's going to demand the type of intellectual honesty that I think this panel uh, has demonstrated in admirable degree. That panel, and I thank them once again, uh, Dr. Bill Mulligan, uh, Charles Cugini, and, of course, the inimitable and... Uh, and the uh, always, always, always productively thoughtful, uh, not that everybody else isn't, but Dr. Charles <laughs> Webble. Um, yeah, be careful with that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you're in your last semester. Give me, come on, hey. come on. Go, fade fade uh, uh, out, fade uh, out gratefully, thing, Bill. Fade out gratefully. <laughs> Let's stop assuming Trump invented Trumpism. Yeah, yeah. Trumpism yeah. has been around in various forms. You know, when the Puritans arrived in Massachusetts Bay, they found two guys frolicking around the Maypole with Indian maidens and put them in chains and sent them back to England. <laughs> the maidens or the guys? The guys. <laughs> with the maidens, perhaps. Who knows? <laughs> you know, the Salem witches were, were not witches. They were social misfits. Yeah. And on and you on. Can go down, you the, the know-nothings who would have... All of us as ethnic Catholics would have... Not been really a real American. Yeah. That's been around almost as long as we've been around. And so let's not assume that this is something Trump summoned yeah. up out of his own genius. I mean, he's, he's tapped into. I, I, I was just, uh, I was just struck by the force history. of an oxymoron hitting me, you know, really face on over there for a section. Both those words in the same sentence. But there'll be many more sentences, and I look forward to them uh, with our panel. And I want to thank you guys for being part of this. And as we, as we always do with Center Left Radio at the end of a show like this, by now there's, there's a, a need to sit back and digest all this. I hope you get a chance to listen to this more than once, uh, our, our, our listeners out there. There's a lot worth listening to. Um, but we, we, we tend to at least digest the, the first course of it or the first uh, consumption of it uh, with... A little jazz.
listening to a special Noble Hearts Forum edition of Center Left Radio. My name is Richard Gazer, and thank you once again for being part of today's show. My special thanks, of course, to John Cugini, to Dr. Bill Mulligan, and Dr. Charles Webel. You've just listened to probably one of the most thoughtful, insightful, and accurate statements, objective statements, of where America is and prescription for where we need to go. Go back and listen to it again. I've never said this at the end of a show. It's that important. Have a great day. Oh.